You are very welcome to a new podcast together with Taranet. And this time I'm actually interviewing the brain behind the code of Voxerflow. Really exciting talk that I look forward to together with Skylar Cullen, who's currently the CTO of Summer Robotic. They're working on Voxerflow towards robotics. And we are obviously complementing each other, uh, two companies working with the same tech, believing in it. And this time we are going to dive into what Voxaflow is and the potential of it, what makes it different, um, but also understand the fit for the technology within within robotics, uh, which is a great opportunity as well. Gaila Cullen, you've studied at Stanford. You've uh, worked at uh, Samsung Electronics, among some other things, for many years. You were the VP of AI and robotics, and you worked towards the autonomous driving and AI as well for a few years. Very welcome to the Turnet podcast. Well, thank you very much, Michaela. I'm uh, I'm very pleased to to join you here. I mean, uh, to sit down and talk to someone that understands this tech as deep as on a deep level as you do is really intriguing. I find those of you who haven't listened to the podcast episodes uh, previously, my name is obviously Michaela Berglund, and I'm the VP of Marketing for for Terranet. Uh, and Skylar, I know that you've got an extensive background working with robotics and it all started with physics, you've told me. Can you just share a little bit about the path of your career and how it's uh, developed throughout the years? Sure, I'd be uh, happy to go a little over uh, my my past work and experience. I actually started out, I, I was always fascinated with physics and math and uh, and basically understanding kind of fundamental principles about how things uh, worked around me. Um, and that led me on a path uh, through undergrad and ultimately graduate school into a, a physics degree. And my, my, um, my focus at the time was actually in particle theory. I was very interested in kind of reducing down um, the, the world in, into as kind of uh, the, 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 the most fundamental units as possible. And so I spent um, my graduate career working on models that kind of go beyond the standard model of physics as it's been currently understood for the last 50 or so years. And so explored some kind of interesting um, variations on how, how particles would interact and some aspects of string theory and, uh, and had a lot of, uh, you know, interesting work there. Ultimately, um, I decided that I wanted to move out of uh, physics at the, at the time, basically, um, we were in an interesting period in physics where we had explored kind of all the possible um, things that we could explore based on experimentation. The experiments weren't really ready to give us new data. And so instead of kind of waiting for new colliders to come online, um, I decided that I wanted to, to try something new. Um, at first, actually, I was, I was thinking, okay, um, I'm graduating with my degree in particle theory. Um, maybe I should go back to uh, uh, to school and get a postdoc in uh, in in brain theory, like computational neuroscience, because I, I was always interested also in you know how it is that we can perceive and uh, and and make sense of the world, and also how do I, we record memories and how do we you know uh, then recall memories. All of that was very fascinating to me. Uh, ultimately, though, this was kind of the the height of the the uh, startup tech boom in Silicon Valley, and so I joined a company 
uh, where they were actually trying to hire mathematicians and physicists to make sense of what was going on inside uh, video uh, for the purpose of compression. And so this was kind of, you know, pre the deep learning era where we were really trying to be able to, in a very general way, understand uh, how objects were recognized in videos and how to track them. And, and so it was very fascinating to me to see how we could actually apply um, our basic physics knowledge into, um, into understanding what's going on inside um, uh, uh, scenes using computers. And so that was kind of my introduction to machine learning and computer vision uh, and the, you know, the power of uh, the, the computation that we had at our fingertips at the time. Also, I, it gave me a great taste of entrepreneurship in the context of a small startup. And that was really exciting to me. Um, and so uh, subsequently I ended up um, founding my own startup and getting it venture funded and, and um, did a number of projects in computer vision and the machine learning space, but always kind of with a, uh, a, a different kind of lens on, on how to do things than kind of someone who had been trained um, specifically with computer science, maybe as a degree. Uh, I always had this kind of physicist, how is this actually mapped back to the physical phenomenon that we're actually trying to model? And I think that gave me an interesting, unique perspective on how we should gather data about the world and how we should represent that data uh, to the world. So when I... And it's quite um, interesting as well, the, the way you've moved throughout your career, because you've started with quite an abstract um, research and then slowly but surely moving into something that's super concrete, but also like a huge trend with uh, autonomous uh, driving and how you could use that um, computer vision, machine learning and three-dimensional um, technologies to and apply into that. How, how did that move go? Yeah, that's, that, that, that's also kind of an interesting story without uh, a, a specific, you know, starting point that with a, with a goal in mind, it turned out that uh, early in, the, in, in 2013, I joined uh, a new division at Samsung uh, that was basically uh, set up to um, spark innovation uh, into Samsung from startups and from academia and just uh, get some of the, uh, the innovative spirit out of Silicon Valley. And so I wasn't given a, a very strong mission. It was, it was um, you know, go and interact with startups and build a team that does something that Samsung doesn't currently do now. And Samsung being a global company with a huge R&D budget, they're doing lots of things, but what they weren't really focusing on was, uh, you know, the, this new wave of machine uh, vision and and machine learning techniques that were that were kind of sprouting up not just in Silicon Valley but uh, in, in various parts of the world, and so uh, I I worked on a number of projects, some of which um, had nothing to do with the with the autonomy, for example, um, trying to come up with uh, a realist photorealistic three D avatars that could communicate across devices, which. I think uh, actually is even more relevant uh, during the uh, the Zoom communication age, uh, but somewhere in the middle of um, uh, 2015, I would say we uh, decided to focus on autonomous, uh, based on what we saw going on in machine learning, the new capabilities, the uh, the, the penetration of new sensors into uh, into the autonomy space, and we thought, well, this would be a great place for Samsung kind of as a, as a hardware maker 
and uh, uh, to layer on top of their hardware uh, the the software capabilities that were sprouting up out of uh, out of academia. And I was one of the, the kind of our the main liaisons to some of the big academic programs, uh, for example, Stanford and Berkeley. Uh, and others. And so I, we, we decided that we were going to try to build Samsung's autonomy platform. Uh, and so that was kind of what kicked all that off. But in the back of my mind, there was always this nagging thought that uh, the way that we approach the, from the fundamental level, the sensing to the representation of data for robotics was too uh, was being too heavily informed by the way we do it for images and videos that are online. You know, uh, some of the biggest companies that invested a lot into doing um, you know image-based AI had huge troves of image-based data, so it made sense for them to do their AI based on that. But once you have a robot that has to react at very um, short time scales and has to deal with a true 3D environment it may be better to use a different type of sensing and uh, representation to actually get it to, 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 to best understand how to interact in the world. And so that was kind of what spurred me to, uh, to split off from Samsung and uh, found this new company with my co-founder, Dirk Smits, to uh, come up with a better way for robots to perceive the world. And how is that possible? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, it stems back to some ideas uh, that, uh, that that we 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 um, back to my my physics perspective. So um, for me, uh, objects in the world, uh, you know, I think it's best to represent them uh, the way that you you would perceive them. So uh, instead of uh, representing objects as uh, uh, contrasts in in arrays of pixels where you where you've basically reduced the representation of the objects down just to this kind of 2d format that doesn't really have uh, a component of time built into it for, for a physicist you know time is a first class um, uh, uh, you know variable to consider in a, in a, in a uh, in a system you know everything is dynamical and things are moving and evolving all the time so um, coming up with a, a mechanism to sense and represent uh, objects uh, as they evolve through time is very important. And so, and also, of course, you know, uh, the, the, the things that you want to interact with and track, you know, pedestrians or cars, or if you're a robot on the uh, manufacturing line, small parts that are whizzing by, you want to uh, interact with them as they appear embedded in the environment. So usually, you know, an object takes up a volume and it has uh, a surface area that, 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 is, uh, that encloses that volume. And so representing objects as moving surfaces, surrounding volumes that could be deforming and rotating and translating, that's the kind of representation that we thought was most appropriate for uh, interacting with the world in, instead of say cameras with images or, uh, or um, point clouds where you just uh, are sampling uh, things in space, but you're not really treating them as objects. You're just treating them as small little point-like samples. And so we, have a, we came up with a more um, holistic representation that it uses extended um, um, uh, features in space to represent objects that are continually evolve in time. And uh, that was, you know, that, that, that's what the, the, the purpose of summer robotics is basically to create this new representation and to exploit it to, to build much more um, powerful, low latency, capable 
uh, functionality for so that robots can can really realize this you know much more uh, capable representation of, of reality. Mm. So it's two things, uh, primarily from from my understanding. It's from from a technical perspective, the value that Voxelflow would bring is um, the real time understanding of what's happening around around the robotics or the robot, so to say, or the vehicle, uh, as in in Tarnet's case, mm-hmm. and then uh, the quality of the data um, being transmitted. Um, that fast so so the density of the data in combination with um, the um, the quality uh, the 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 low latency absolutely yeah so you're you're keying off of a a couple of important um, novel aspects of this technology so instead of um treating the world kind of as static frames that are delivered periodically, we're sampling the world in microsecond timescales and continually updating our representation of the world at these much shorter uh, timeframes. And so that allows the robot to very dynamically interact with the world um, without having to wait for, uh, uh, to, without having to wait for, um, you know, a camera or a lidar to to deliver a whole new frame of data, it, it, and and try to guess what happened between that the last frame and the current frame. Now a robot is just continually getting a feed of data, just like a biological system. You know, uh, the eye is constantly getting uh, updating new information in you know uh, millisecond timescales and passing that on to the brain to process. The same thing is happening here. We're providing a stream of data and the data is very specific to the kind of uh, application that we want to address, which is you know, surfaces of objects that are moving and changing. And you wanna, you wanna know exactly how, where an object is, uh, where it's going with as uh, much precision as possible. And of course, be able to understand what it is that you're seeing. And so a representation that goes, that has uh, you know, 100X lower latency and super high resolution uh, it, it, in its representation is, is, is a much more powerful um, uh, way in which to, to p- provide perception data for a robot. Mm. Would you say that the like, first steps of using this technology in robotics, would it be with like, smaller um, robots or would it be um, in, in, like, in a mine or like, what do you vision? So uh, the nice thing about this technology uh, is that it has, one of the nice things is that it has broad applicability to uh, robotic contexts across many markets. And in fact, we think that this is a new par- paradigm that will be adopted into um, any um, market or use case that involves ob- robots needing to deal with dynamic possibly fast moving, possibly safety critical types of situations. So for example, in your case, in the automotive field, uh, if you need to protect vulnerable road users uh, while you're uh, driving you know, a, a one ton vehicle through an urban environment, you need to guarantee that you're going to see an object in time or a pedestrian in time if they're you know, dashing out in front of uh, two cars right in front of you. Um, and you need to have you know, the utmost uh, confidence that you're actually seeing something appearing 
uh, so that you can actually take evasive maneuvers. That's one aspect. That's one example of a, of a good use case. Uh, another uh, a typical use case is where um, a smaller robot uh, that may be in a logistics context, either indoors or outdoors, needs to navigate and protect any people that might, you know, uh, interact with it. So we're, we're taking robots and we're taking them out of confined spaces uh, where you, you can guarantee that you don't have to worry about the safety of humans because they're just walled off from the robots and allowing the robots to interact uh, just like any other human might interact in that same space uh, while guaranteeing that it will never collide with the humans uh, and, you know, uh, will be able to keep, you know, safe distance and, but safely carry out its mission in a way that doesn't make it inefficient. You know, you can always uh, guarantee that a, a robot in, in some of these contexts will be safe just by making it go super slow, but then it's not really economically interesting. So, uh, one key that our technology enables is uh, the, the highest level of safety, but also letting robots move at a speed that makes economic sense. So if we then look at the technical the technical aspects, because you've actually built the code for this sensing system. And uh, it's in- interesting to hear your interest in, in, in the brain and how it works. And then the way you describe Voxaflow is like a, a human-inspired sensing system of perceiving the world in real time and communicating the way the human body works biologically. So it's uh, it's quite interesting uh, to hear. What's so revolutionary uh, with Voxelflow? And you compared uh, a few of the technologies that's used in in uh, the automotive world as well: lidar, radar, and um, cameras. Are they used in in robotics as well? Yeah, so uh, there's there's a few sensors that are very important in robotics. Premier among the sensors, cameras provide the richest amount of data, and uh, none of the other uh, technologies can really compare to kind of the density and resolution of information that you get from cameras. Uh, and so for um, most cases, a camera is what is kind of classifying uh, the uh, objects and, and determining kind of some of the, the, the more um, uh, fine uh, degrees of information about objects. Uh, other technologies, um, specifically uh, technologies that actively sense the environment and pull out, um, you know, yeah, so the, the, one of the, the, the primary sensor that's used for perception purposes in robotics, and that kind of includes automotive as well, is our cameras, just because they're the densest uh, and highest resolution form of information. And so famously, uh, Tesla is trying to use only cameras uh, because uh, they they provide you know so much more uh, data than than other sensors. Um, the the other sensors that are used um, it, primarily, if we're talking about just uh, robotics contexts, where where you kind of have slower speeds and, and, and closer uh, confines or various forms of 3D sensing technologies, um, some of which are getting um, uh, uh, very capable in terms of their resolution uh, and, uh, and uh, range and range accuracy. And, and, but the, I would say that the algorithms, the, the, the algorithms are most mature uh, for cameras in terms of uh, in, in, for, in terms of perception stack. And so a lot of these 3D technologies tend to adopt kind of camera-like um, perceptual stacks, uh, which I don't think actually fully exploits 
the 3D nature of, of the data. Um, what we, uh, what, what our technology promises uh, that it is not uh, available in any of the other technologies is really putting uh, is a, a couple of things. And we, we just discussed them uh, uh, just a moment ago. If, if you look at kind of typical robotic contexts, um, I would say that uh, cameras typically run at 10 to maybe 30 hertz. Um, and so you're getting your data in uh, either hundreds of milliseconds or tens of milliseconds. And, and the, the camera obviously treats the world as if nothing changed during the exposure and delivery of that data. And then it, it um, basically provides a new data set that uh, has some gap between what, when the last data was collected. And you don't know what happened uh, between those two data sets. And so you kind of have this, what is relatively high latency, depending on the kind of scenarios you, you care about. Sometimes um, with cameras, uh, you, you may want to know what happened on a, on a couple of millisecond timescale for safety critical situations, uh, or for, for example, AR and VR type of applications, you actually care about lower latency um, uh, than what, or even on the manufacturing timeline. If you, if you want to have rapid motions, you care about um, things that uh, cameras actually don't see because they don't, they don't um, supply the data with low enough latency. Um, and that actually goes also for current 3D technologies. They, they all have a relatively high latency for certain situations that are important in robotics. Um, our technology- what would, what, what would those situations be? Yeah, so um, anything where you need to be able to make a, a response in uh, just a few milliseconds, like decide, okay, I'm gonna take this evasive maneuver, or if you want to get a really precise understanding of, of, of a velocity, if you're taking these samples just you know periodically every tens of milliseconds uh, and, you, uh, and you need to respond uh, uh, in, in a few milliseconds, update your, either update your perception of, of, of the world um, or, or actually you know, take an action, you, uh, you want to not have to wait. So the, the, the problem is you know, the, with, with cameras or with these other technologies, it's not just kind of the single update that matters, but actually observing how, uh, how a pedestrian or how another object is moving over time, you actually have to take multiple samples. Um, and so uh, to get a refined understanding of the, the, the full behavior. The movement. Yeah. yeah, the movement. And so if you have to wait a lot, then it's not just the single observation, but it's like over, you know, five, you know, say you have to take five observations to get an accurate measure of the velocity. You Now you've gone from, say, uh, a latency of 100 milliseconds to a latency of 500 milliseconds, which is, tip, you know, the typical LIDAR latency is about 100 milliseconds. And so if you don't... Do you think that the AI behind um, behind Voxaflow could even pull down the latency even further than if, you know, if we talk about three to five to 10 milliseconds? Yeah, so um, there is the... Uh, the 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 possibility for us to get full perception loops down to a millisecond. So we uh, I, we I believe that in certain contexts we can easily be a hundred x faster than uh, other technologies in providing 
usable perceptual output about what uh, is going on in the world uh, that a, a control system can take advantage of. And so then suddenly you open up the opportunities for control systems to operate at a much um, lower latency, which actually simplifies the control systems because now they don't have to worry about what changed between observations, but know that you know just very small changes have, have happened in the world. And it can be more like a biological system. Like you know, a, a, a human or an animal is not solving some complex nonlinear optimization every time we want to track uh, an object or move our arm or, or or move around in the world. We're kind of doing things in in some sort of, of uh, you know simple iterative flow type of mechanism. And the reason we're doing that is because we're getting actually a much more low latency updates about what's going on in the world and also using. Um, um, more uh, more um, brain power in our contextual processing to to understand what's going on in the world. And so, if you can give robots, a, you know, this millisecond update uh, on what's going at the high level perceptual level, they can actually react in a in, in a in a way uh, that uh, uses much simpler kind of control me mechanisms. And so, you know, while robots still uh, don't nearly have the level of sophistication at the high level as humans do in terms of all of our background understanding about how the world works and physics and, you know, biology and things that are just kind of, you know, imbued at us uh, uh, from birth and then through all of our experiences, how they can compensate and actually have superhuman proprioception capabilities is by doing it way faster than humans. Like humans, we don't have millisecond response times. We have 250 millisecond response times. And so robots can be not as intelligent as humans, um, but they, if they can uh, have 250x you know, faster re reaction times, they can, they can run kind of simpler algorithms while staying safe. So the, the fact that we have this lower, per, uh, lower perception loops opens up a huge new opportunity for us to do things, do things that humans simply cannot do, uh, even while not needing to necessarily have the human level intelligence for these kind of safety critical behaviors. And I know that you've obviously, like I mentioned before in this conversation, you've um, been coding the algorithms to support this super low latency. How do one do that? <laughs> Uh, so, so our, the team at Summer Robotics uh, has uh, developed a, a, the ability to uh, track uh, active illumination uh, on microsecond time scales. Uh, it's a combination of uh, using novel hardware, but hardware that, that that's uh, not not developed by us and is in some sense off the shelf. Um, and uh, scanning technologies that are also off the shelf, but using novel tracking algorithms uh, that uh, combine a very kind of physics-based approach uh, to, to, uh, to, to the tracking uh, such that we can continually pull out 3D data represented not as in point clouds, but as um, more structured uh, representations of object surfaces. And we can do that uh, with microsecond updates in our in our uh, in the representation, uh, and we're really only limited by uh, the 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 ability of the sensors to 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 provide us uh, additional points of data as as we scan the world, uh, and we have come up with very very efficient 
computational techniques to represent this uh, in the in the 3D world. In fact, um, we probably you know use less than one uh, percent uh, uh, of the compute that you would typically um, be required to pull out and represent objects uh, in the way that we do than you would with uh, typical techniques that you would use uh, with other data types. So we've really so not, tried a, not a high yeah. energy consumption. No, and so we're, we're, we're very efficient in our use of light because the light that we use is not encoded into some sort of complicated um, stream of data that, that you need to decode for every new observation. For us, it's essentially kind of a, a binary operation. So we can be very efficient in our usage of light. Uh, once again, probably a hundred X improvement in our, in our light efficiency, which lets us see farther and see updates faster than we would if we, we had a more complex uh, representation of the, the, uh, the code that comes out of the light. And then we have very efficient ways in which we um, process the signal and extract the, the data. And it's uh, a lot of it has to do with the fact that we've just got a new representation. It's a different representation that uh, is inherently more efficient. How come the, you, you are so committed to developing this technology? Ah, well, th this goes back <laughs> more to kind of my philosophical feelings about um, the value of uh, robotics. And the, the, I, these ideas stem back to when I first got into the field, you know, I was, a, I was uh, impressed at what you could do with a computer and how you could um, kind of start automating things and get computers to do really useful uh, things that weren't kind of previously just pre-programmed into the computer. And, you know, it, it, to me, it looked like, well, if we can really build a dexterous, uh, capable robot that can that, that can do many tasks that it couldn't previously do, and do tasks that, that humans currently do, we could really unleash uh, a, a kind of a, a new uh, a new lifestyle for humans. Like, uh, in, for do me, you, have you have you envisioned a specific uh, picture of? Yeah. So uh, you know, one 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 thing that uh, uh, that. I, I always thought would be uh, an amazing change for just you know day-to-day -day human life is uh, the the automation of the transport of people and goods uh, by robots. I'm not the only person who you know ever thought that that was an important thing to do. But for me, you know, if you if you can imagine robots that can respond you know, hundreds of times faster than humans, it be, it suddenly makes um, the environment that we live in. Um, much more, um, uh, you know, conducive to, to humans interacting. So if we can uh, have uh, robotically controlled vehicles that are transporting humans or goods through, through an environment and they can react uh, incredibly quickly to, to what's going on around them, we actually stop having to actually worry about interacting uh, with these uh, with, with the ro robots, so kids can you know play freely in their environment and not worry about getting run over. Uh, pets and other animals can walk through the streets and really not pay attention to to the to the vehicles. So we could I could imagine uh, kind of a reworking of um, you know our cities and our suburban landscapes in such a way that. Uh, the, the instead of uh, uh, cars and other vehicles kicking us off the streets and making uh, pedestrians and, and animals second-class citizens, we could actually be the primary 
uh, uh, owners of the of the, the the public spaces and the vehicles would navigate around us and, and not get in our way. And so I thought that would be you know amazing. You know, as a lifelong bicyclist and runner, uh, you know, it's it, it would be nice you know for for the the vulnerable road user to be the first class citizen and the car be the second class citizen. So that's one way in which I've imagined you know uh, you, this technology. But the, there's many other things like. Um, if you really have robots with incredible dexterity and visual capabilities, suddenly you take away a lot of kind of the um, rote, um, repetitive tasks that I would say the human brain uh, is, shouldn't be sub subject to, uh, and and let people do things that are involve more creativity and more high level decision making. So. Um, you know, I agree. And I actually think in that now, obviously, I work with Terranet, so I can very much support your vision on that I emphasize with in terms of, you know, wanting to contribute to a, a safer world where we ensure innovation can continue and vehicles can be improved and we can use them more efficiently and ensure safety. That's a vision that really aligns with the way I want to contribute to this world. But also, I think it's it's very interesting what you tap into now, talking about the time we spend in traffic. You know, I've read so much about even like the calmest people get really irritated in traffic, mm. right? And make like super decisions. And imagine if you could actually let go and use that time to read a book or actually just be quiet and think about something or use that time for something else. That's really intriguing. Or spend less time in traffic altogether. Uh, there's studies that I've read where 40% of trips that people take in cars are uh, less than four miles. And uh, a lot of them have to do with just going back and forth to the store. But if you really um, make robots capable of moving goods around you can make them much more efficient than a human, uh, much more cost-effective. And so uh, you probably reduce a lot of those short trips that people end up um, spending their time on. Uh, and you also you know, are much more environmentally efficient. You know, Instead of having some large, say, four-person occupant vehicle that weighs a ton and a human driver that weighs 150 pounds, you can have a small, speedy, dexterous little vehicle that, uh, is, you know, weighs no more than a, a couple hundred pounds uh, transporting your goods and doing it all electrically, of course, uh, and then and otherwise being used um, much more uh, uh, with with much greater uh, use of the vehicle than you would with a, a person's passenger car. So I see a lot of benefits, you know, environmentally and to just people's, you know, day to day enjoyment of life. Um, by being able to automate, automate some of these uh, very frequent tasks. Mm. And uh, what do you then look forward to uh, at Summer Robotics this upcoming year? Yes, yeah, so we're, um, uh, we're a small startup based in Silicon Valley. Uh, we're, we're adding team members to develop this core technology that we've been discussing uh, we're speaking with uh, customers about some you know, very exciting use cases across different uh, markets and industries. And we're, uh, we're, we, we want to be able to deploy real commercial applications uh, over the next year or two. And so we're at a very exciting time um, where we're just uh, you know, exploring 
the, 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 the new uh, areas in which we can apply our technology and building that core. Uh, and so it's, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're just at that, that, that very exciting beginning time um, with a small, very passionate team. I can imagine. I just, I just have one, uh, one thing I want you to think about, and I don't want you to make the robots too clever, too close to the, too, <laughs> not too biological. If, <laughs> if you want, to, to, I don't want them to take over. <laughs> if you want a, a good analogy, uh, the one that I like in the biological realm to describe is is the squirrel. So squirrels have amazing. Um, muscular reflexes, like five millisecond uh, reaction loops, which is a, a much faster twitch than many other animals. And so while squirrels aren't uh, obviously the most intelligent animal in the animal kingdom, one thing they can do is really uh, you dodge. So, um, you know, I have a cat and the cat will like to sit on, uh, on our fence and maybe hide in the bushes that uh, cover the fence. And a squirrel will be running across the fence and the cat will jump out to pounce on the squirrel but in the time that this cat begins to leap in the air, the squirrels uh, so fast, it will slide onto the side of the fence, run behind the cat, and then get back up on the fence before the cats really even had a chance to, to react. So the squirrel doesn't have like some sophisticated planning about the world, but it has such fast reaction times that it can do things that uh, you know a more sophisticated mind like a humans uh, couldn't do. It would be the same thing for these robotic systems. Robotic systems, I'm not building, you know, the high-level conceptual brain that allows them to, um, like, decide their mission or change how they think, you know, uh, that they, they should behave in the world. I'm just making them much more agile in, in performing kind of these low-level tasks. Um, it's, it'll be interesting to see what the future holds um, as people try to develop more sophisticated AI, but I'm probably in that camp that think that... Um, uh, worrying about the robots having a mind of their own is quite a quite a ways out in the future. Yeah, I I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, but thank you for sharing that. Yeah, um, it definitely gives a hint of the difference between Voxelflow and the technologies used for both robotics and for uh, for vehicles as well. Uh, mm -hmm. It's great to listen to you uh, to hear your your passion and your vision and your knowledge. Uh, so it will be really interesting to follow uh, you onwards. And uh, as um, some of you might know, we've also shared information about collaborations between Turner and Summer Robotics. Obviously, uh, one of the founders of Summer Robotics are the inventor of Oxiflow, Dirk Smits, uh, together with Skyler. Um, Skylar, thank you for participating in this uh, episode of the podcast. It was a it's pleasure, Michaela. Yeah, <laughs> and it feels really good that we are on the same kind of wanting to make this world a better place. <laughs> I feel that, that that could end this conversation. Yes, uh, that's a great note to end things on. I, I'm very optimistic about the future for, uh, for this technology and for how, how it can benefit people. And how fast it's going to, it's a lot is going to happen in, in the next two years. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you.